Well, this morning we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Judges by continuing as we tend to do in chronological order. Last week we looked at Judges chapter 6, and so this week we'll look at Judges chapter 7. Very nice, nicely done. And as we continue this morning, not only will we look at Judges chapter 7, but this is a continuation of the story of Gideon. Gideon's a bit of an unusual character in the book of Judges because he receives so much attention. A lot of uh, the judges, a lot of those special deliverers raised up by God in the life of Israel really only got a couple of verses or maybe half a chapter, but Gideon gets three chapters. Samson gets a number of chapters. Deborah and Barak got a couple of chapters. They're unusual here. And so because he is a bit unusual, we want to pay extra attention to what's happening. This morning, as we look at Judges chapter 7, I want to give just a brief recap of Judges chapter 6, and then an overview of the narrative events of Judges chapter 7. Coming out of that overview, then, we'll, we'll spend the remainder of our time thinking very specifically about what Judges chapter 7 can tell us about God, what Judges chapter 7 can tell us about Jesus, and tell us about humanity, about ourselves. Very specifically this morning, we'll think about those three concepts and the idea of God's intercession. In Judges chapter 6, if you uh, didn't, weren't here last week, that's fine. Uh, read uh, the, the passage uh, later this afternoon. And in Judges chapter 6, we remember that God called and commissioned this man named Gideon into his service. Israel, the nation of Israel, had, had once again fallen into idolatry, into the worship of false gods and idols. And in order to bring them back to himself, God, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, allowed the Midianites, this outside force, to dominate them, to steal their crops and their herds. That drove the people of Israel into hiding. Remember where we found Gideon, where we're first introduced to Gideon in, in Judges chapter 6, is not out on a battlefield. It's not out him doing a miraculous feats of strength as if it's Festivus. No, it is Gideon hiding in a wine press. Israel, dominated by the Midianites, turned back to God. He called Gideon to be their deliverer in his power. He commissioned Gideon to do something far bigger than himself and Gideon, we know, was frightened, and so he needed God to reveal himself through signs. And as chapter 6 comes to a close, that's exactly what God did. And so as Judges chapter 7 opens, we find Gideon, this man who was once in the wine press, now on the field of battle with an army of 32,000 men. It's quite impressive, right? To go from the wine press to the general of 32,000 men, that's quite impressive. But then as we heard Adam read for us this morning, God did something that quite frankly sounds odd, at least at first glance. God tells Gideon, your 32,000 are too many. And so he reduces the number of Gideon's army. How insane is that? Can you imagine what Gideon is thinking? First, God tells Gideon to allow whoever was fearful and trembling to return home. 22,000 of his soldiers went home. And I can't help but think there is some 
irony, some humor here in this man who was once fearful and trembling, and as we'll see, is still fearful and trembling, says to his army of 32,000 men, whoever's fearful and trembling, you do what I can't do. You go home, and I'll stay here. 10,000 men are left, and so God says to Gideon, you still have too many. So God further reduced Gideon's army based simply on how they drank water. And that 10,000 army became an army, if, if we can even call it that, of 300 men. Think about that and imagine what Gideon was thinking. He began the day with an army of 32,000 men, and he ended the day with an army of 300. That same night, Gideon, God sent Gideon on a recon mission to the edge of the Midianite camp. And there Gideon overheard two Midianites speaking one explaining a dream to his friend, a dream that is absolutely absurd, absolutely ridiculous, a dream of a cake of barley bread rolling into a campsite, smashing a tent. And his friend, this Midianite's friend, understood the dream, interpreted the dream to mean that God, the God of Israel, had given Gideon the victory. And so Gideon, of course, is encouraged, he's strengthened, and the next day, it's exactly what happens. Gideon and his band of 300 surrounded the Midianite camp, a camp so large that it was compared to locusts, a number of their camels, the number of their camels compared to the sand on the seashore. And these 300 men with a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other, unless you have a third hand, you don't have a hand for a weapon. They surround the camp, and when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. That's the overall narrative of, of Gideon, of Judges, chapter 7. The overall narrative here of Gideon's victory. But what do we see here? What do we hear about God, about Jesus, and about ourselves? This morning, I'd like for us to consider three aspects of God's intercessory work. First, we'll think together about God interceding on behalf of his people for his own glory. Second, we'll see that the intercessory work of God, God's intercession on behalf of others, is to give them life. It is for their good. And then finally, we'll see that God, who intercedes for the good of his people and for his glory, intercedes for their transformation. So God intercedes for his glory. God intercedes to give life. God intercedes to transform. To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another and so when we say that God intercedes, we mean that God, the creator of the universe, in this particular context of Judges chapter 7, that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, we mean that he gets in the middle and in the mix. He gets in the middle and in the mix of his people's lives, and he works on their behalf against their enemy for their good. God does this for his glory. Now let's think just about that for a moment. What does it mean for God to work for his own glory? And what in the world is glory in the first place? Glory is one of those things that may be hard to define. It's a bit, a little bit like a greased pig. You can't ever quite get your arms all the way around it, but you can kind of think and figure some of it out. Glory is one of those things that we may not be able to define it, but we kind of know it when we see it. 
Glory fundamentally refers to God's honor, to God's dignity. It refers sometimes in the Old Testament to a weightiness, a heaviness that comes with God's presence. It, it certainly refers to his holiness, the, the fact that he is absolutely perfect and manifold in his perfections and without sin, without blemish. It, and it certainly means, God's glory certainly means that he is significant. God is glorious, God's character is glorious, God's actions are glorious. This means that, that God acts for his honor, that God acts out of his weightiness, that God protects his own dignity, reveals his significance, shows his beauty. How does he do that? He gets in the middle and in the mix. God is not like some far-removed cosmic landlord who won't even fix the air conditioner when it breaks but yet expects your rent on 10 o'clock in the morning on the first day of the month. It's not who God is. God is both imminent and transcendent, and in his glory, revealing his glory, he gets involved. What does he do here in Judges chapter 7? He fights on the behalf of Israel. He gets in the way of the Midianites. He causes the Midianites actually to fight against themselves. He delivers, he gives life to the Israelites for his own glory. And what is revealed about God when he acts for his own glory, when he defends his honor, when he declares his significance? It reveals his existence. God acting on behalf of his glory reveals that he is indeed existent. We must remember that in the ancient world, when, when one people or nation group over here won a victory over another people or nation over here, it was often thought that the conqueror's God had defeated the conquered people's God. And so when Yahweh, when God intercedes for Israel and defeats the Midianites, he is proclaiming to the Midianites and to Israel that he is true, that he is real, that this honors him. Revealing his significance, revealing his character, revealing his person. It works for his glory. And we recognize as well that when God intercedes on behalf of his people, it does, as it should, result in his people worshiping him, glorifying him, giving him glory and honor and praise. And so in his actions, his people, on whose behalf he is acting, they see him and they respond in appropriate ways by saying, yes, to God be the glory, to God be the honor, to God be the praise. This is reflected in the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we can say that to be fully alive, to be fully human, is to be found in the place and in the relationship of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. We can say that God intercedes on behalf of his people in order to bring them to this place where they can be fully alive. You see, God intercedes for his glory to give life to his people. And that's the second thing that we see here in, in Judges chapter 7. God intervenes to bring glory to himself, even in the weakness of the people. And God intercedes on behalf of his people to make them alive. Irenaeus, an early church father, uh, once said, The glory of God is man fully alive. And in Judges chapter 7, God intercedes for his people, causing the confusion and the destruction of the Midianite army. This is God's victory, the only possible explanation 
of 300 men with their hands full of trumpets, trumpets and torches. The only possible explanation for that group of men defeating the Midianites, such a huge military force, was that God did the work. And in his intercession, in his victory, God gives life to Israel. You think about where they were prior to the raising up of Gideon. They were oppressed by the Midianites. The scriptures in Judges chapter 6 tells us the Midianites would raid into the Israelite territory, steal their crops, and graze their livestock on the yet fully grown crops, taking away the life, taking away the bread, the vitality of the people of Israel. In the overthrow of the Midianites, in the defeat of the Midianites, what he does, what God does, is give them life back. That seems to be the pattern of God taking the initiative to intercede on behalf of his people so that they can have life and be alive. You think about that, uh, the very fact that something exists as opposed to nothing, the giving of life, creation is God's idea. The calling of Abram to be the father of a great nation, to give life, God's idea. Events in the life of Jacob and Joseph, God's idea. The exodus and the wilderness wanderings, God's intercession on behalf of Israel to give them life. The conquest of the promised land under Joshua. The deliverances under the judges. All of those God's interceding work to give life to his people. And the amazing thing about this, as amazing as wonderful these events were from creation to the call of Abram to the work of Gideon, as amazing as these things are, all of these are only examples of God working on behalf of his people, of God interceding for their rescue that point towards the great intercession. All of these things establish a habit, a pattern of who God is to intercede, to give life, which point towards the great deliverance, the once and for all death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the great rescuer, as unexpected as he may be. Jesus is God's initiative for rescue that all the prior initiatives point toward. And so let's hear some words of God's intercession through the great rescuer, Jesus, as he intercedes to give life. We heard one of those words this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul, writing to his young friend uh, Timothy, says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And John, the apostle, says this, This is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this is life in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What happens in Judges chapter 7 is what happens throughout the course of Scripture is happening today. God intercedes on behalf of his people to give them life. Folks, we are dead in our sins, and we can only come alive in Jesus. And so the reality for us is that we as humans, we need intercession. We need saving because we can't save ourselves. We need rescue. There is no such thing as self-rescue. In 2017, the Coast Guard had to rescue a man and his dog from a channel of water near Juneau, Alaska. His uh, raft had begun to take on water. And you might think that's no big deal because where we live, we recognize that uh, the Coast Guard save people from their own stupidity an awful lot, right? Every day. I heard that over there, Cliff. Every day. All summer long. Yes, but this one is is especially uh, poignant because 
You see, the Coast Guard had to rescue the man from his boat, which was a homemade inflatable duct tape craft. <laughs> he launched himself out into the channel near Juneau, Alaska with his dog in a homemade inflatable duct tape raft. And probably much to his surprise, even in the calm weather that he was in, his boat began to take on water and to sink, and the Coast Guard had to lift him out, rescue him. The news story kept his name private, by the way, probably to spare him embarrassment. <laughs> Folks, we need rescue. We need intercession. The people of Israel in the book of Judges, they tried to do things their own way. They did what was right in their own eyes. They tried to lead themselves, to rule themselves. And when we do that, which we do, when we do that, when we are left to ourselves, our own devices, and when we demand to have our own way, when we seek our own way and our own rescue, we are adrift in a sea in a duct tape homemade raft that will quickly begin to take on water. And that sea is made up of our deepest enemy, sin, death, and Satan. And so we need God's intercession through Jesus Christ to rescue us up from those things, to give us life. And there is great spiritual danger in thinking otherwise. Tim Keller points out, the lesson that we learn from Judges chapter 7, the lesson we always need to learn is that salvation is by God's gracious action, not by earning it with our actions. Judges chapter 7 shows us God intercedes on behalf of his people to bring himself glory, but also to give life. Life to those who are dependent upon him so that we can be fully alive and be, live for the glory of God. There's one more thing that we learn from Judges chapter 7 and God's intercession, his intercessory work. He does it for his glory. He does it for the good of his people and giving them life. And he also intercedes to transform his people because they are not yet what he wants them to be. In Judges chapter 7, uh, God is patiently growing Gideon and he's teaching Israel. Gideon still seems to be sort of a, in this sort of liminal space, this, this place between what was and what he's called to be, this threshold between the two. And it's a place of change, a place of discomfort. But by the beginning of chapter 7, Gideon has, has stepped through the threshold, so to speak. He's responded to the call of God. He's been commissioned by God. He responds with faith. He's toppled his father's idol and destroyed the shrine. He's gathered an army. He's even marched out to battle. And yet fear remains. Sometimes our past will haunt us. They will call to us. And so we know this, and perhaps it is that Gideon is haunted and called back to the winepress. And so God intercedes for Gideon with Gideon to transform him. On the eve of battle unto a man we first found hiding in a winepress, to a man whose army was reduced by 99%, God says, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. On the eve of the battle, Gideon was clearly afraid, and we know that he was afraid because Gideon did what God told him to do if he was afraid. God is so patient to bring Gideon to that place where God wants him to be. He needs to be transformed. He needs to be transformed out of his own self-reliance and fear into courage and 
dependence upon God. He was green. And Israel was green with him. And so often it is. God's people are green and need ripening. God's people need his intercession for the purpose of transformation. God loved Gideon perfectly, just like he loves you and me perfectly. And he wants what was good, what he decided and what he designed, what he calls good for Gideon and for all whom he loves. And this means then that God desires those whom he loves to be fully alive and full of faith and confidence, not in themselves, but in him. And that requires transformation. That required Gideon, and it requires us to be made different, to be made different by God, the patient God who intercedes on our behalf, intercedes for us, and intercedes with us. And so he sent Gideon to the edge of the camp, and he gave to these two Midianites a dream and an interpretation to transform Gideon. He sends his Holy Spirit upon us to lead us as we read the word, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we worship together, to lead us into places of growth. The transformation of his people, God is made known. God is celebrated. God is magnified. God gets the credit. God intercedes. God intercedes for, the, for his people. He does it for his glory, that he would be made known and worshiped. God fights on behalf of his people. He intercedes for them that they may have life, true life, independence upon him. And God intercedes to transform, to ripen those who believe. This is the intercessory work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the giving of life, the transforming of life for His glory. Now, if, like me, you're one of those pragmatists who want to say, okay, now what big deal? Give me something to do. All right, well, let me tell you what to do, right? Here's steps A, B, and C. You can check them off your list. What must be done? Nothing. Believe and receive. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, said we must be born again. Well, I don't know about you guys, but my being born the first time didn't have much to do with me. And it wasn't something that I did. It was something that was done to me. And so it is that the birth that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, it isn't something that we do. It's something done to us by the Holy Spirit working within us while we cast our eyes upon Jesus and believe in him. So what must we do to uh, receive the benefit of God's intercessory work? Receive it as a gift because that's what it is. Receive it with faith. In order to benefit from the triune God's intercession on our behalf, all that must be done is to look upon Jesus with faith, trusting in him and receiving that which he has to give, which is life and transformation for God's greater glory. If you haven't yet, why not? And if you have already, well, you need to be transformed, so receive it again. God intercedes on behalf of his people for their good and for his glory. He gives life. He transforms. And all for his glory, his honor, and his praise. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and give you thanks. There is so much grace in your intercessory work. Thank you for working on our behalf to give us life. Thank you for working on our behalf for transformation, and we pray that you would be glorified in us. Make yourself known. Exalt Jesus before us. Celebrate him that we may honor him truly. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.